Well, friends, welcome to the show. Uh, it's called Stand to Reason. I am your host, Greg Kokel, and glad to be with you here today. Um, I just came back uh, for about nine days out of town. We had a magnificent showing in Minneapolis, about the same that we had last year, just a little shy of 3,800. So uh, that's a lot of young people, middle schoolers and high schoolers, to be um, in one place, one church, nearly 4,000, and it was magnificent. That's all I can tell you. I love realities. Uh, I love the impact they're having on people. I love the feedback that we get from people who um, attend and I'm so proud of the team that put on a tremendous conference every year. I do almost nothing. <laughs> All right. I show up for a couple of um, workshops on uh, Saturday. I talk to donors at a special breakfast we have at Dark 30 on Saturday morning before all the big stuff starts. I do uh, a luncheon with the, the adults that uh, in leadership at noon. And then I close the whole session with um, with a closing thoughts, a challenge to the Christians and to the non-Christians, the tire kickers, and it's my version of an altar call. I don't do that kind of thing very often, or at least not the way most people think of it. I never did really understand this, by the way, one aspect of altar calls, and that is when the pastor says, now with every head bowed and every eye closed— and then he invites people to shoot their hand up real quickly. And I had one pastor I thought who did this pretty well. And he said, okay, uh, I see your hand. Is that what you're doing? Are you receiving Christ right now? Okay, tell the person next to you. Tap them on the shoulder and tell them that you're receiving Jesus right now. So there is an element in that particular pastor's approach that um, made the decision a little bit more public. But I, I, I realize what people are trying to do. They're giving an altar call, and they want people not to be embarrassed or, in a sense, have to um, identify themselves at that moment as someone that is identifying with Christ in faith, in trust, in belief. I understand what they're trying to do, but why is that significant? Somebody once said, uh, what you are one with is what you are one to. So if you're, for example, one with an, a hard-driving emotional appeal and your emotions are all whipped up and the music's going and all these things are happening and that's the incentive for you to trust in Christ, then that is also the kind of thing you are being one to. You're being one with an emotional approach so that then you're going to be anticipating this is the way it's going to be for the rest of your life, okay? Um and that's a problem, I, you can imagine. Um, I don't want people, when I'm giving something like that, I don't want music behind me. I do not want to make it an emotional moment. I want somebody to make a, a solid, clear-headed commitment to following Jesus for the rest of their lives, never quitting. And uh, that means of necessity that you have to be visible about your own faith. Jesus said it. Those who confess me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Paul also said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So there is this vis- visible element that's really important to becoming a Christian. At Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon there on Pentecost Sunday, thousands of people came forward to be baptized, meaning thousands had put their trust in Christ as a result of the sermon that Peter, Peter preached, and they were then willing to come for, forward publicly and make a declaration, let people know that they had sided with Jesus in faith. So if that's the biblical pattern, then why are we doing every head bowed and every eye closed? Instead of having people identify that they're trusting Christ. Now I don't I don't actually think that's a biblical motif at all. The idea of altar calls or inviting people to pray and receive Christ um as Lord and Savior. This this is not done in the New Testament. It's uh actually about 150 years old, the second great awakening, middle of the nineteenth century, where we see this happening. But uh it it is a certainly a practice now. I'm not dissing the practice. I'm not against it. I just think it has its liabilities. And one of the liabilities are that you can sometimes get an emotional response um, that or have an emotional conviction or have a—how uh, am I trying to phrase this? You, you, Because of the emotions of the moment, people make a move, but they aren't deeply connected to their own convictions. They're responding to a feeling. And— uh, I don't. That's not what I want. I think it was Ray Comfort who was asked once, "Can you get decisions when you come to our church and do your presentation?" He said, "Yeah, decisions are easy, but I don't want decisions. I want conversions. Those are harder and fewer." And I think that's what we really want. So why is it if we want people to walk with Christ visibly, confess with their mouth Jesus as Lord? Why is it that? On our invitation, we're inviting them to kind of hide so nobody can see that they're poking their hand up in the air and uh, and receiving Jesus. I, it makes no sense to me. Not that I can't understand the motivation, but in the big picture or the purpose of trying to give privacy like that. It's not meant to be a private conviction or a private decision in one sense. Live for Christ is the idea, and that requires a visible um, manifestation of some sort. So why don't we just <laughs> start off like that? Well, not so many people will raise their hand if you do it that way, that way, to which I respond, so what? I actually don't think it's the raising of the hand that gets you into the kingdom anyway. It's the attitude of the heart. What I said a couple of weeks ago at Minneapolis is I said, you know, I was inviting them to do business with God regarding the issue of sin. And the point is, everybody, as a matter of fact, is going to stand before God and give an account for their lives. And at that time, we're going to find out we are woefully um, uh, short in terms of our righteousness. And the books that are open, the books of death is what I call them, are going to evidence that. And uh, now what? And the simple answer is either perfect justice or perfect mercy. Perfect justice is punishment for everything you've ever done wrong, and God misses nothing. And perfect mercy is forgiveness for everything you've ever done wrong, and God misses nothing. The hard calculus is either Jesus pays or you pay. And that's what I told the young people. So do your business with Jesus now. 
at the hotel tonight or at your home tonight or even right now in your heart, bend your knee, beat your breast, and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Then get up and follow Christ without stopping for the rest of your life. That's the way I put it. So I don't want people hiding when they make a decision like that. I don't ask them to hold their hands up. It doesn't matter to me. What matters is our, one's attitude towards God. There's nothing magical about putting your hand up in the air. Sometimes I guess it's a motif by which someone can express their their uh, commitment or their trusting in Jesus. But again, like I said, you don't see that in the New Testament, so there's no need for that. Now, when I say there's no need for that kind of thing, I realize it makes a lot of people nervous, and I've been chastised by <clears throat> at least one dear brother in the Lord, whose name you would recognize, that uh, I shouldn't be saying, don't worry about praying with someone to receive Christ. You always offer them an opportunity. That was his view. It's not my view. And the reason uh, is because I think when the fruit is ripe, it falls off the tree. <laughs> when the fruit is ripe, in a certain sense, it harvests itself. Now, of course, you and I know that it's the Holy Spirit that is the harvester, but just follow the metaphor for a moment. So if it's September, October, and you go in the Midwest to an apple orchard, where are where do you find all the ripe apples? They're on the ground. They fell off the tree because they were ripe. Harvesting is not hard, friends, when the fruit is ripe. The hard work is in the gardening. I've said this many times. The hard work is in the gardening. You do the gardening right, a little here, a little there, putting a stone in the shoe here and there and whatever. And sometimes it's maybe not just a little here, but it's more here and there. You give more time to the process. Nevertheless, it's still that process of communicating, challenging, encouraging, laying the gospel out until people believe. You mean I don't have to ask them to receive Christ? No. I don't see any reason why you have to do that. You are allowed to do that. You may do that. Even when the Philippian jailer um, became a Christian, he says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul just simply says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, your whole household. He didn't say, do you want to bow your head now and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Uh, he didn't try to harvest the fruit. The fruit was being harvested at that moment by the Holy Spirit. Of course, we know the record that not only did he believe and was baptized, but his family believed also and was baptized. The fruit just fell off the tree when it was ripe. Um, and if it's not ripe and we start pulling on it before it's ripe, we can sometimes bruise the fruit. And this is a liability of always kind of going for the gold in every conversation. Plus, if we try to do that, you know, try to close the deal, if we're, that's what we're pushing for, and we communicate that that's what's required, there's a whole lot of people that aren't going to get in play because that sounds like fighting words to them in the context of this culture. And so they're going to just sit on the bench. And my goal is to get people off of the bench and into conversation. It's one of the reasons the tactical game plan, using questions, is so effective because when you're using questions, you, you're safe. Questions keep you safe. And if you have a, a means of entering into what otherwise would be 
controversial conversations, and you can do it in a safe fashion, and also in a fashion that's going to make a difference to somebody, the chances are pretty good that you're going to get off the bench and be willing to enter in because there's safety involved. And that's the tactical street smarts approach. Street smarts is just an extension of the tactics uh, book. It's a it's it's like the third step of tactics on steroids. Okay, so um, that's a. When, when I'm just I guess reflecting now on uh, opining on the altar call kind of circumstance just kind of came to mind, so I thought I'd share that. But it was fabulous to see all of those young people there. We pretty much maxed out that church. Grace Church Eden Prairie is the largest church in Minnesota, the entire state. And I think it can technically hold, what, about 4,100 or something? That means every single seat in every single row on each of the three levels you got the bottom level, then you have the cascade of the seats going up into like stadium seating, and then above it you got a big balcony with a bunch of more rows. And incidentally, I did learn there's always a police force that's there doing uh, security, right? Local PD. And uh, one of the policemen shared with one of our staffers that he went up to the upper level, very top, balcony row, because that's where all the goof-offs go, right? They start goofing around, and when he went in, he looked. It was filled with students taking notes, wrapped in attention to the speaker. It's fabulous. It's great. It's the best kind of group for us to work with. Now, of course, we're only halfway done with our season for reality, and we also have more, three more coming up, one in Dallas, one in Philly, and one in Augusta, Georgia. Looking for the dates on these right now, usually about mid-month. Um, here we go. So February 23rd and 24th will be uh, Reality Student Apologetics in North Dallas area. We'll have, which by the way, will be live streamed online. So you can uh, pay to watch if you can't make it out there. And a lot of people can't because the middle America we miss. It would be great if we could have one in Denver and Cincinnati, and that will pretty much not only box the compass, but fill in that big lacuna, lacuna. Is that the right word? Yeah, the big hole in the middle. But we can't do that because we can't have eight. We don't have enough people for that. It's just too much. So we stick with six, and we put one online that you can watch. That'll be the Dallas event on um, the uh, 22nd and 23rd of February. Then in March, we'll be in Philly, and I kind of joke with people. That's our, like, New England one. That's kind of south for New England I say, yeah, but that's as far north as we can get and still find Christians. <laughs> so we'll be in Philly March 22nd, 23rd, and then we'll be in Augusta, Georgia, April 19 and 20. The theme is May Manor Maker, Who Says Who You Are? And our speakers include uh, Stand the Reason Crowd, of course, um, Alan Schleeman and Tim, Tim Barnett and John Noyce and Robbie Lashua. And also Sean McDowell and Lanesh Garrison and Christopher Yuan and Tripp and Megan Allman. I mean, it's a great lineup. And we've filled up every venue so far. Um, you really can't fill any venue up like, well, I guess that's not true. We did fill up venues 100% right now in Biola and in uh, in Seattle. few seats were left over in the Minneapolis one. But you think of it, you got 4,000 people and you got 10 breakouts. 
That means you got to have breakout rooms that can hold 400 people each on average. Uh, that's larger than the average church in America. But that's the kind of turnout we've been getting. So we'll be we'll probably be keeping it right at 3,000. We can't lose it, move into a larger church <laughs> unless we move out of state. And it's a fabulous church to work with. So for those of you who went to Reality, I hope you really enjoyed yourself. Um, but I do have this this other concern about altar calls. Let me tell you a secret about something. I just discovered this recently. And that's because when I started speaking on Street Smarts in um, early September, because that's when it came out, doing a lot of events where I talk about Street Smarts, which is a hybrid of the tactics talk going into the third step in more detail, since in Street Smarts there are chapters dealing with a whole host of different issues. Two chapters on atheism, one chapter on the problem of evil, a chapter on whether we can be good without God that relates to the moral project with atheism. We have two chapters on abortion. We have two chapters on Jesus, who he is and what he did, and why is he the only way. We have two chapters on the Bible, um, Bible and science, and also biblical issues like slavery and alleged genocide in the Bible. We have a chapter on um, gender, sex, and marriage. So we try to cover all the stops by giving you the background information. Um, then you are in a position to see the flaws, because I show the flaws to you, and then you can use questions to expose those flaws and help people to see, hmm, maybe your view isn't as good as you thought it was. All right. And we use the tactical game plan for doing that. But it requires questions. So I have included the kinds of questions that would be appropriate to the given challenge that you're facing. Here are the flaws of atheism. And here are the questions you can ask to lead into a conversation about atheism that is meant to expose those flaws. So that's it's a unique book in that regard. Um, uh, street smarts, using questions to answer Christianity's toughest challenges. But when I go and give talks on that now, I spend quite a bit of time talking about the gardening concept, what I was just sharing with you a moment ago. Don't worry about the harvest. The harvest takes care of itself. When the fruit is ripe, it drops into the basket. Worry rather about the gardening. And the problem is we've been given harvesting tools, which are those tracks with the sinner's prayer in the end, but which is fine. I'm not against those. I'm just saying that's for one small slice of the whole process. And since most people are not ready to harvest, they are in the process. Gardening is more important to move them forward. And what I do with the tactics book and the Streets Are Smarts book is to give you gardening tools. Now, try to make this point about the importance of gardening to an audience. I take a little poll, and I've done this virtually every time I've talked about this issue in the last two months. And I'll continue doing it, even though I know what the results are going to be. It's good for the audience to see by show of hands the results of this poll I take. Because I'm making the point that the gardening is most important. And in fact, you don't have to worry about the harvest because it kind of takes care of itself, just like it did in the New Testament. Jesus preached, people believed. Paul preached, people believed. So um, what I do is I ask... How many people here in this audience are Christian and did not become a Christian by coming forward in a kind of an altar call or raising your hands in the audience if somebody gives the call that way or having somebody pray with you to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior? And I promise you, the average number of hands that go up is around 70%. 
In other words, 70% of people harvested themselves after a fashion. Well, the Holy Spirit did the harvesting. They weren't led to Christ by an individual. Now, this is going to be the case with almost everyone that was raised in a church, because they grew up believing in, at some level, and that belief got more and more thoroughgoing and sophisticated, theologically um, robust, and uh, now they're Christians, but they never remember a time when they weren't. They didn't have a spiritual birthday. You could even be a Christian who becomes a Christian later in life as an adult, like John Noyes here on Stand to Reason's team. He was an atheist, now he's a Christian. He has no spiritual birthday. He doesn't know when he crossed over. But he, he just knows that he did, and that's the way it works for a lot of people. And the reason I keep taking this poll is just to confirm my own convictions about this having seen past audiences weigh in. But I want all the people in the audience to look around and say, okay, keep your hands up, put it up high. Now look around. Look around. These are all the people that got harvested without being challenged to pray to receive Christ in one way or another. That's the New Testament pattern. I want them to have the confidence in that. And it, it is the idea of challenging somebody to pray to receive Christ. That's the tough spot. And I remember, you know, my misguided attempts to teach in evangelism many, many, many years ago. And one of the things I said, now you're going to get to the hardest point in the conversation if you're talking to people about Christ, and that's where you challenge them to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And of course, it is a hard part, which is why a lot of people avoid it. The mistake I was making is there's no reason that you have to do that, especially biblically or theologically. God brings the harvest in. If you want to do that, fine, do it. And by the way, I think if you're angry at me and what I've been saying, and you're saying, hey, come on, Coco, you're making it too easy on people, well, you're probably a harvester. <laughs> That's what you do well. That means God places you sovereignly in positions where there's a lot of ripe fruit. Look at Billy Graham. People who come to his, who used to go to his conferences or his uh, crusades, or whatever you want to call them, they were coming because they were ready, at least in some significant way. They wouldn't go if they weren't. But the guy that well-known, <laughs> it's not going to be a surprise what is going to happen there. He's going to give a sermon and invite you to trust Christ and come forward. He was really good at harvesting ripe fruit. Okay, but that's his deal. I don't think most people are harvesters. Why not? Because the hard work is in gardening. I'm convinced that most people are gardeners. I planted, Paul says, Apollo watered, but God caused the increase. God's in charge of the growth and the harvesting of it, and we just do those things. We plant, we water, we weed, we hoe. We do the things that gardeners do in the life of somebody else talking about these spiritual things. And you know this, I've talked about putting a stone in someone's shoe. That's all I'm after. I'm just trying to get them thinking. I'm just trying to do a little bit. And uh, and then they're up. To, it's up to God. Now, I think some, some, some of you, maybe many of you know that um, even though I don't pray with people to receive Christ, there are lots of people who still become Christians to some degree as a result of my gardening in their life. J. Warner Wallace, well-known apologist, also had been a part of Standard Reasons team for for a couple of years before he just rocketed off in the stratosphere with his popularity and his writing and his speaking. 
Um, Jim was in my garden when he was an atheist. John Noyes was in my garden when he was an atheist. He told me the other day how he used to drive along listening to the radio show I was doing, screaming at the radio. Actually, screaming at me, who's on the radio. He's so mad at me as an atheist. Yet God brought him around. And Stand to Reason and the work that we do here was a significant piece of that um, that journey, the gardening, gardening, gardening. Now, what what happened in their case? Well, somebody went into my garden and they <laughs> harvested my crop. Hey, get out of my garden, right? No, that's not my attitude. Jesus said in John 4 that the one who sows and the one who reaps can rejoice together. In other words, all one team, we have different jobs. My concern is so much focus has been placed on the gardening, I'm sorry, on the harvesting, that a lot of gardeners are left out. They don't think they can participate. A lot of you, I know this, you think I haven't led anyone to Christ in years, or I've never led anybody to Christ. What a loser. Well, I haven't prayed with anyone to receive Christ in over three decades. But I, I have never been more effective for the cause of Christ than I have in the last three decades because I focus heavily on gardening. And then Jay Warner and John Noyes, these are examples that are very visible examples of the effectiveness of gardening. They come to Christ through somebody else. That's fine with me. Doesn't matter. It matters that they come in to the fold, but how they're brought in doesn't matter to me. But I can do a little here, a little there, and this is what the training I offer in tactics and street smarts is meant to help you do. Okay? And when you do that and realize, gee, it's not as hard as I thought, I can do this. We lower the bar, then we increase the number of workers in the field. And when I say lower the bar, I'm lowering the bar that is what we expect of a person in the process of evangelizing or witnessing. Um, we are not We are not illicitly making it easier on them. We're not cheating down in a way. No, what we're doing is following a biblical example and doing it in a way that is 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 safe, it's easy. Anyone can virtually anyone can participate no matter how little you know or how knowledgeable or aggressive or even obnoxious the other person happens to be. The game plan allows you to maneuver, maneuver and in very simple ways have a powerful impact in the lives of others. And that's very cool. Um that's what we're trying to do, of course, at Realities. We're gardening. We shoot for a harvest a little bit at the end for those who are ready. But I don't have to ask anybody to do anything. I just lay it out clearly and then challenge them to make their move. Make, resolve this with God. Do your business with God and then start walking a brand new life. I don't have to worry about getting hands up in the air, people with their eyes closed and their head bowed. I don't have to worry about that. I give them the truth and let God take care of that. That's my approach. And you might find that helpful too, especially since it is exemplified everywhere in the Gospels and the Book of Acts. All right, let's take a break here, and then we'll uh, come back to your calls on Stand to Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. 
Hashtag STR Ask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. If an LGBT person asks you to accommodate the request and what they're asking you to do violates your conscience, should you go along? Find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on iTunes, Spotify, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. All righty. Up to the callers now, and we'll start with Virginia and Guy. Amy, can you hit that button for me, please? Yeah, there we go. Guy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Greg. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing today. Uh, I'm out on the East Coast. It's tonight. Okay, tonight it's getting darker here too. So I'm I'm doing fine. Glad you called, Guy. What's up? Well, thank you very much for taking my call. I'm mm-hmm. a longtime fan, a first time caller. <clears throat> I've read uh, your book on tactics and mm-hmm. relativism, and uh, the articles on does God whisper, and a whole number of. Uh, podcasts that you've done and, wow. and just really exquisite work oh, thank uh, you. that you've done. And uh, I really appreciate it. I've talked a lot in our Sunday school uh, classes and uh, at church using your materials. Mm-hmm. And it, it's always been uh, just very, very well received, very, very thoughtful. And I was wondering if maybe you could help me understand something. I, I uh, received the, the email solid ground uh, last month, and it was the article on you'll never be able to change anyone's mind yeah. uh, on the truth of That's any actually spiritual our, issue. Yeah, our, our uh, mentoring letter, actually, but I understand what you mean. Mentoring, thank yeah. you. Thank it's you the short much. one. Um, yeah, it's the short yeah, one. It, it was. And um, when I read through it, it was the first time that it ever made th- that anything I've, I've read ever made me really question the value of apologetics. Hmm. Uh, I was wondering if you can help me understand or maybe reconcile how our efforts in presenting an apologetic argument or a response to objections, things like that, uh, that along with God's efforts, how, how those two things work together 
in the evangelism sure. and conversion process yeah. without devaluing the importance of apologetics. And maybe I can, maybe I can tell you the the mental dead end uh, that I ended up in, and then you can talk me out of it. Uh, because <laughs> I hope so. It, it seemed to me that <clears throat> if the words themselves, and, and just three seconds of background, I'm in sales. So I sell high-end computer equipment uh, to banks and financial institutions. So I have to do a lot of explaining and answering objections and persuading people and asking them for a decision. And that's what I've been doing for maybe the last 30, 40 years uh -huh. uh, of my life. And if the words themselves are not really the thing that persuades people as to the truth of a conclusion, <clears throat> and in this case, the truth of the gospel, then it seems to me, and here's my problem, it seems to me that we really don't need to put that much effort into our apologetic studying and our apologetic efforts. We can just use the minimum amount of uh, information, and then God can just use any words that come out of our mouth to cause people to repent and accept Him. Mm -hmm. And that seemed contrary uh, to me. So I was wondering if maybe, based on what I read in the article, if you can talk me out of, talk me around that conclusion, sure, uh, and show me maybe where I missed it. Well, I'll do my best, um, Guy. I, um, this I hope that made sense. Yes, of course it did, and it's the it's the um, it's the same point I addressed. I, I expanded on this point a little bit more for the sake of the mentoring letter that went out, but I also make the same point in chapter two of tactics. And and I'm responding in chapter two to speci the specific charge that nobody can be argued into the kingdom, and what we need to do is the alternative. Then they offer is to love people and give them the simple gospel, and that's the thing that's going to change their heart. And my response is, well, in a sense, nobody can be argued into the kingdom, but in the same sense, nobody can be loved into the kingdom either, and nobody can be won into the kingdom by giving the simple gospel. Because the fact is, there's a lot of people who hear the simple gospel or experience the love of other Christians that don't enter the kingdom, okay? Right. So what is, the, what is the factor that is decisive given those means? And the, the, the factor that's decisive is the work of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is involved, then you can love someone into the kingdom. He uses that. You can give them the simple gospel, and there are times when that is adequate to bring someone to Christ. Or you can spend a lot of time with apologetics. Um, and when I say a lot of time, I mean, you could look at C.S. Lewis. He went for years and years and years being challenged by those in his life, those smart people, regarding intellectual elements that eventually brought him to Christ. And then when he became a Christ, there wasn't even like a specific aha moment. He says that in, in, by his own testimony, he climbs into the sidecar of a motorcycle with his brother Warney, not a Christian, takes a trip to the zoo, and when he returns, by the time he's back, he is a Christian. Something happened in the midst of that trip that just God knows. But it, it, it didn't happen in a vacuum. The vacuum of the conversations that he was having with, for, among others, um, J.R.R. Tolkien, okay? And those are all things that God used as an appropriate means to accomplish the end that God had in mind, which is the salvation of their soul.
So I, I mentioned appropriate means. Obviously, God can do use anything. He can use the preaching of the gospel that is done by wrong motives. And we know that because of what Paul says. Some people are preaching the gospel out of good motives and others as bad motives. And he says, what then? Whether in pretense or in truth, the gospel be preached. So God can use anything there, but notice that when the gospel is preached, in those cases, he was using the content of the gospel even when it was given with bad motives. God gets to decide that, all right? But it does seem you can't just go up to somebody who doesn't speak English and give him the gospel in English and say, well, God can do whatever he wants and whatever, and it doesn't even need to be in English, I mean, in the language they understand, because God can work this miracle of regeneration. Now, that's not the way God works. As we look at the Scriptures, we see that God ordains certain ends of a certainty, okay? He, in other words, He secures the end, but the means are, are important steps to the end, and He employs the means to accomplish that. A perfect example in my mind is when Jesus, um, and we're going to we're coming up on Christmas now, so this is kind of apropos, is that when baby Jesus was threatened by Nero, the angel appeared to Joseph and said, "Take him to Egypt, where he'll be safe." Yet it was this same Jesus that Peter says God ordained, like from the foundation of the world, to die on a cross thirty-three years after he was born. God ordained the end. Nevertheless, there were means to the end, and Jesus was protected by going to another country where the threat was gone. You might say, wait a minute. If God ordained the end that Jesus was going to uh, die on a cross in 33, then there's no way anybody could have harmed him. Joseph could have said, hey, here's the baby. Take your shot. Try to cut him in pieces. God has already ordained that he's going to live for another 33 years, okay? It just isn't the way it works. Now, why it doesn't work that way and what's in God's mind and how all this works together, I don't know, because I don't know the mind of God, and he hasn't revealed that. What we do have are certain commands and assurances of ends that God will accomplish through our actions. And and, and in the commands, and we also have examples in the Gospels and in the Book of Acts, of godly people communicating to others in a very particular way. Now, part of the reason I think apologetics works is because God is honored when a good—and he's, he's happy to use a good argument as the means to bring someone in, because that reflects his nature. He is happy to use a, an act of love to bring someone in. That reflects his nature. He's happy to use his own word the gospel in a simple form, because this is his word that he has given. So it's it, I, your question is a fair one, and I think there's some mystery that's involved. And the way that I solve that for myself is I just have to look at the text and see what's happening. We are commanded to do these things, the apostles did these things, but the end is something that is secured by God by the means that he's commanded. So that's what I do, and I, I, I don't try to figure it out any more than that, because I don't know how to figure it out any more than that. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement, and I think—thank uh, you. Uh, I, I think that I can look at it 
from the way that you uh, outlined in the article. Mm-hmm. Uh, 100% our effort and 100% God's. Exactly. And I can just ignore God's part of it, because I don't have visibility into what he's doing. Yeah, in, in a functional way, you ignore it. Uh, in but a functional in, in, way. But in, in a theological way, we understand that God is our partner, our witnessing partner, and he will do what he wants to do. We don't know what that's going to be, but we're not alone. We just don't have to worry about his part, because he'll take care of that. We just worry about our part, which, as I put it before, is to be as faith as a, as truthful as persuasive and as gracious as possible in our conversations with other people. that So the persuasiveness is a big thing, because Jesus was persuasive in Certainly. a number of different ways. Paul was persuasive because he, he says that, I, I reasoned with them, or actually Luke mentions that Paul reasoned with them, and some were persuaded. So it's the right. reasoning that God used to persuade others, and I, I, I can't plumb the depths of that anymore. <laughs> um, no, but, I think that I think that's fair. And so long as so long as apologetics has some type of causal effect in people's minds, uh-huh. a, a rational argument. And I think you mentioned Jay Warner Wallace uh, earlier, and I love his materials. Right. And he had indicated that there are three people, there are three reasons that people shun the gospel, rational, emotional, and volitional. Mm-hmm. And the rash, people who have rational arguments, certainly apologetics helps them to overcome those mental objections and, and hurdles that they have in their mind. Right. Emotional objections, you know, people may say, hey, I've met hypocrites at church, and I don't yeah. want to be a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then volitional are people who just... They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it, yeah. and the gospel and Christ are in the way. They're, knuckle, uh, they're knuckleheads. They're knuckleheads. <laughs> and there's not much you can do for those people other than, right. uh, other than uh, pray that God sends more people who are mm-hmm. maybe better skilled than I am. Yeah, uh, and look at and we know that <clears throat> excuse me, God has penetrated each of those, those uh, type yes. of, of, of objections, you know. And uh, whether they're emotional or rational or volitional, God can get around that, and He uses means to accomplish it. What means He's going to use, I don't know. I mean, I, I different people are gifted in different ways, Guy. I think this is pretty obvious to you. You know, we we True. use what we've got, and I mean, this is what I do. This is, as Jim would say, this is my lane, or this is my unicorn. This is the particular thing that I do well for the kingdom. And so I'm kind of specializing, but that's exactly how gifts are meant to be used, because when we read about gifts, gifts are specialties. You're an eye, you're an ear, you're a hand, you're a mouth, whatever. The body illustration that Paul uses in uh, Romans 13 and 1 Corinthians, I make it Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. So there are different responsibilities that we have, but we all specialize in some way. And in the midst of our specialty, then God decides to use that. That's his business. Makes sense? Well, I find the work that you do to be very encouraging. Uh, I think there was an old phrase that said, Christianity is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. <laughs> and uh, we've, seen, <laughs> we've seen some of the best uh, folks out there, such as, you know, Lee Strobel and C.S. Lewis, you know, take their best shot at Christianity when they were um, uh, atheists. Right. And and uh, their uh, profound intellects trying to bring Christianity down, yeah. only to find out that the uh, the apologetic is solid. 
And uh, I, I really I, appreciate the work that you do. Thank you. I agree with you, of course, and uh, and I'm glad you appreciate it and you've benefited from what we do. I just that's thrilling. So Greatly. I'm glad to clear up some confusion, Guy. I hope uh, hope that really helps. You have, you. and I, I greatly appreciate it, and keep up the good work. All right, buddy. We will, God willing. Okay? Thanks, Greg. Sure. God bye. bless you. Bye, Guy. Bye-bye. All right, so um, my buttons aren't working. We'll see if this works here. This is for Ed in Nashville. And, yes, I got it. Okay. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. Got you in here at the end of the hour. I appreciate it. I've been a listener for several years. Actually, my story is a lot like guys. I uh, appreciate what you and your team at Standard Reason do to help us be better equipped to defend and present the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, your books and articles and podcasts have been a huge influence on me. Mm, that's great. Uh, been a great help in my life. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Ed. My question concerns the LDS Gospel Topic Essays, which are published on the LDS.org website. Okay. And... uh just to kind of preface this very shortly uh, before I uh, ask my question, um, they state on the website, the purpose of these essays, which have been approved by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, has been to gather accurate information from many different sources and publications and place it in the Gospel Topics section of the LDS.org website, where the material can more easily be accessed and studied by church members and other interested parties. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually bury it on the website. They so have to go looking for them to find them. But um, basically, the essays reveal, surprisingly, reveal the lies and deception that the Mormon leaders have taught from the beginning mm-hmm. and expose the truth that they've hidden from their members for 150 years. Um, they hedge a little bit, but basically they're laying it out. And, uh, of course, with the advent of the Internet and things like that, since Joseph Smith's time, things have come to light. Um, and the topics include First Vision Accounts, Book of Mormon, and DNA studies. Uh, and they admit uh, that DNA doesn't connect to the Jews, and the Book of Mormon translation was done with seer stones, and, and that um, the Book of Abraham is basically a, an Egyptian hieroglyphic uh it has nothing to do with Abraham. So all that is admitted. And so, um, Are you saying so, this is something the LDS Church is acknowledging in some of these yes. articles? Interesting. Yes, I, just, I don't know this for sure, but just because it's there, uh, I sort of suspect that um, what they're actually doing is taking steps to decrease their liability. I mean, they built a religion on lies and have duped people into joining a church, which requires them to tithe. Hmm and kind of sets them up as fraudulent and hmm. maybe subject to lawsuits. I, I mean, I don't know why they did it, but it's there. You can go uh, to the LDS.org website and look up Gospel Topic Essays, and it covers all these subjects. Hmm. And Mormons, as I understand it, are beginning to discover this, and and I've heard from sources they're leaving the Church in droves because they feel betrayed and uh, duped and... and uh, my question is this. I'll go ahead and get to that. Okay. Um, should these official LDS documents be used when witnessing to Mormons? And if so, at what point should they be mentioned? They're so revealing and so devastating to longtime Mormons that many of them feel betrayed and, and 
don't even want anything to do with religion after hearing that. I mean, mm-hmm. They're so just emotionally destroyed. Right, That's right. why they're leaving. So I know Second Corinthians chapter 10 says we're supposed to cast down strongholds, and these documents <laughs> do that by themselves, but to what effect? I mean, if people are devastated to learn that they've been betrayed by the church they've given their lives to for years, it seems like they won't be emotionally ready to even discuss, much less embrace, the views of Christianity. So should we engage them first with solid biblical arguments and discussion, and then later show them these documents? Or just how should we use these? Or should they even be maybe not a part of our strategy at all? Yeah, okay. Let me respond, uh, just for the sake of time, we got about nine minutes to go here, and um, this is new information for me, but if I understand it correctly, that uh, the LDS Church is putting online a series of gospel topic essays, and within these essays, they are admitting um, things that they've said in the past aren't true, and you think that they're doing that to avoid... um, legal problems with people who have joined the church and are giving money and everything, and then find out that they have not been forthright about the truth. And this is their way of kind of covering their back. Is that correct? Well, that's just a supposition on my part. I mean, I, I, oh, okay. I, it, seems, it seems very odd that now, after all these years, they would come out and say, oh, by the way, we weren't telling you the truth. That's exactly yeah. Okay. So we'll just set their motivation aside for the time sure. being. But what the sure. gospel topic essays amount to are are defeaters to certain parts of Mormon doctrine and teaching, exactly. and this is given by the Mormon Church itself. Well, if your question, if that's right, if that's what these are, and your question yes. is, is it okay to use these by witnessing to Mormons? Absolutely. I don't see why it wouldn't be. What we're trying to do is make the case that the Mormon characterization of God and Jesus and heaven and hell and uh, resurrection and marriage and a whole host of other things that are features of reality is wrong. It's mistaken. And um, a different view is correct. That is our view, all right? And the difference matters in an eternal perspective. And if they are helping by, for whatever reason, publishing material that confirms that they have not been forthright with uh, their their people earlier on. I don't see why you can't use that. Well, uh, I, I, What would give you hesitation? Well, I have no hesitation. My question was, at what point do you use that? If you, if you start your conversation with that, uh, it, it's like you just, it's like walking up and, you know, hitting them in the head with a okay, hammer. Okay, well, I mean, all right. So, <laughs> yes, okay, let me try to answer that. I, that, and to some degree, is going to be a, um, a strategic question that you answer, in a sense, on the fly. I, I don't know if I were, if I were talking with Mormons and knew about this information, I'd probably want to try to work it in as soon as possible. Um, just so they could, just to create doubt in their own mind about their own thing and what I, uh, their own revelation and their own prophets, etc. But I wouldn't be thumping them on the chest with this. Right. My my style would be much different. It would be basically kind of coming in under the radar, and uh, and you say, you know, there's a lot about. Let me just I'll, I'll role play a kind of way that you might mention this. There's a lot sure. of things I would say to the missionaries. There's a lot of things that that are really really great about Mormons, 
all right? These are some of the nicest people in the world. You have great family structure and all those other things, and this is very appealing. But I'm confused about some of the things the Mormon Church has said now about the, the theological foundation for Mormonism or LDS theology. I they guess they don't like Mormon terminology anymore. They want LDS or whatever. But whatever, you're just being sensitive to them as best as possible. And you say, I'm confused because look at this. Here they have these gospel topic essays that are that are um, part of the the LDS Church teaching. This is what they say here. You know, this looks like the, the their they're acknowledging now that some of these things that you've built your whole religion on are just false. Now, what what am I supposed to do about that? And here's a, I just thought of a nice twist here. Mm-hmm. What you're going to be do is not throw it back in their face. You're going to just point out that what am I supposed to do? You want me to become a Mormon, but why? What am I going to do with all of this information that they they have just revealed about the falsehoods they've promoted. What should I do? Now, when you do it that way, you're getting the issue out on the table. But instead of directing it at them, you're directing it at yourself. All right. But they're going to figure it out. They're going to get it. So they'll be less likely to be defensive than if you said, look at your obviously your religion is false. And these people are admitting it here in gospel topic essays. So there, mm-hmm. take that, you know. Yeah. But if you said, look, you, you, you're, you, you want me to become a Mormon, right? LDS. But here's what your your people are saying. Here they are. You bring it up on the computer. Here's what they say. These, see, this is legitimate LDS stuff. And here's, look at what I'm reading. They're telling me that they've not been forthcoming. They've actually deceived. So tell me why I should become a Mormon in light of this deception. And of course, the subtext is, and why do you remain a Mormon in light of this deception? So I would bring a point up like that fairly early in the conversation. Well, thank you. That's a great response. And and that's what I I love about your work and and standard reason that you give us uh, a way to think clearly about it Mm -hmm. and, and approaches to use. And that's really helpful. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. But just just to be clear, though, I'm we're, we're both doing, and especially me in this case, I'm doing armchair witnessing, right, or armchair sure. theology, or whatever, armchair cult busting, or whatever. It doesn't mean you know I'm relaxed now when you're talking to me, and so my mind is much more lucid, and these things are popping up. When I'm actually in a conversation with people, I may not be so quick on my feet. But here's the deal, and I talk about this in the tactics book that there's there are. There are three times where you can, uh, in a sense, formulate a point, uh, formulate a point regarding somebody else's view that you think is false, and one is before you encounter it, one is while you encounter it. That's the second, and the third one is after you encounter it. Okay, the hardest one is while you're encountering it. All right. Because now you 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 got the people right there, and you're 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 under the gun time wise, and uh, who knows what else is concerned. But if you when the pressure is off, before and after, um, that's the times when you can work through something, and that's what's happening here. So I come up with this, but the pressure is not on me. But what it does is what we've now got some some ways of understanding this on the table, so that. You are now in advance prepared 
for addressing these things when uh, when you talk to your Mormon missionary friends that come to your door. So, uh, I mean, that's in the tactics book. And so I'm not always quick on my feet. But what I do try to do is I try to anticipate difficulties that will come up and then work through what a dialogue would look like. And this is what I did in, in Straight Smarts. I got all kinds of dialogues in there. Not because I've had every one of those dialogues. I've had some. But what I'm trying to do is to, using the the game plan and the Street Smart methodology, I'm trying to anticipate what's going to happen, likely to come up, and be ready for it when it comes up. And so then I can stay relaxed and calm, and there are always going to be questions, like even the example I gave you. What am I supposed to do? I know you want me to come and warm up. What am I supposed to do when your own church is admitting that it's lying to you about substantive things? So um, that's like what you're doing. You're preparing in advance. And you might even role play it a little bit with, with yourself. I do it by myself or with other people, whatever, so that you've kind of got some, you know, motor memory about, muscle memory about how this works. And uh, uh, then when you are confronted with that situation, you can be relaxed and smooth and come in scratching your head like Lieutenant Colombo. Anyway, there you have it, Ed. I'm glad about your, uh, th- thank you for your call. And please call me back in a couple of months or a couple of weeks, whatever. After you've had some more conversations, I'll be interested to find out how it all went. Okay, there's the music, friends. That's it for the show. Greg Kokel here for Standard Reason. You give them heaven. Okay? Bye-bye now.